Would you open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and I'll just read the last verse. And then I will read the first five verses in chapter 3. I'm just struggling with a little bit of sinus stuff up here, so... I'll start reading in verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing in faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Let's pray. Father, we thank you like always for your word that's illuminating, Father God, encouraging, insightful, strengthening, and edifying, Father God. We thank you for salvation through faith in Christ alone, Lord God. The Galatians were saved by it, we are saved by it, but if we're not careful, we too can be bewitched from it, Father God. As we can fall prey to so many other inferior teachings that set aside the gospel of grace and pursuit of perfecting our lives by the flesh and by the doctrines of men. Come, Father God, and speak to the foolishness in our own hearts. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we have been going through the book of Galatians, we've noticed two themes up to this point that Paul has been speaking about, and that's that there was an attack on him, and there was an attack on his message. The first two chapters basically have dealt a blow to that. That Paul is a true apostle, he's not a self-proclaimed, self-exalted apostle, that he's been truly set apart by God to preach the gospel. His message is the true message of the gospel. It's not watered down, it's not preaching to please men as he was accused. He was accused of being a preacher that took out circumcision, that took out the law of Moses so that the Gentiles would uh, be attracted to it. It's, it's addition by subtraction. Take something out and, and, the, and they'll come in. Just remove circumcision, remove the law of Moses, remove any kind of religious regulations and people will be attracted to this Jesus guy. That's basically what they uh, accuse Paul. Paul defends himself, but before he defends himself in chapter 1 and 2, he said, oh, he said not, oh foolish Galatians, but he said, why have you deserted him who has called you in the grace of his son? Now Paul in chapter 3 makes a new turn, and he gets back to the original intent he wants to get why this church that was built up on such strong teaching, such clarified crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, that salvation is in Christ alone. They were saved by it. They embraced it. They loved it. They were nurtured by it. 
Why are they deserting this gospel for some kind of gospel that says, well, you need to be circumcised and you need to follow food laws and you need to follow the law of Moses. If you really want to be acceptable to God, faith in Jesus is part of it, but you still have to do certain requirements. Now, 2,000 years later, me and you would say, well, how foolish were these Galatians? But as we found out over the weeks and over the months, we too can fall into that trap very easily because it's very seducing to want to try to please God. Because a lot of our life we think we're not pleasing to God. And let me tell you something, you're not. Neither am I. God, Jesus has pleased God on our behalf. You can never ever work yourself into a better relationship with God than you're already in by faith. That takes years of acceptance. To truly understand that truth. And so we can all fall into the trap of getting on the works righteousness or trying to please God and become acceptable to God. We're best just accepting what Christ has done for us. So it's all of us are easy to fall into this. But he is calling them out on the carpet for their dereliction of duty. O foolish Galatians follows verse 21 in the second chapter where Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God because if salvation came through works, Christ died for nothing. Then he goes on to say, O foolish Galatians. It's stemming from this foundational truth. If Jesus is God, if Jesus is Redeemer, if Jesus is Savior, if Jesus had to come, if sin is so bad and the law of God cannot save then everything has to be attached to faith in Christ. To believe in any addition or to supplement just faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is to become foolish on our behalf. And the Galatians did that. They embraced this teaching of the Mosaic law with Christ. And Paul sharply rebukes them. He actually calls them foolish. It means you've played the fool. You have been bewitched. You've been deceived. Like a spell has been cast. Someone has manipulated the way you think. And has seduced you from Jesus Christ. Let's make no mistake about it. This is a wholesale rejection of salvation by faith. These people aren't saying, well, maybe... Faith is wrong and the, the law is right. Paul doesn't treat it as a two things. He treats it as you are severed from Christ. This is a real strong and sharp rebuke. And when, when we think about the language, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let's understand something. This is rhetorical language. 2,000 years ago, this is the way they spoke. When they were making a point, they would use such kind of language. It wasn't to be degrading. It was to make a point. Spiritually, you act like a fool. And there's no other way I can describe it but by calling it what it is. You've been deceived. You've played the fool. You've been gullible. You haven't been analytical. I've taught you what the gospel is. It's before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was betrayed and crucified. You embrace that. Then why are you deserting this gospel now? Who's bewitched you? Who has talked you into something else? And we'd like to believe we can't be talked into anything else, but the truth of the matter is it's easy to be talked into anything else if you don't know the original product. It's easy to buy a Rolex for $6 on the street if you don't know what a Rolex is. That's, that sounds good. 
You know what I mean? You don't see the I is missing, the, the E is missing, the I is replaced, and, you know, it doesn't fit. And who, who cares? You know, $6, this is good. It's going to look good. They think this looks good. Let me become a little Jewish. Because I look more religious. That's what's going on here. They're becoming Jewish to be more accepted to God. Paul will have nothing to do with this. As we enter into chapter 3 and 4, Paul's going to argue this case from three different perspectives. First, from Christian experience, in these first five verses, I'll speak about that today. Then uh, verses 6 to 14, he'll speak about it from the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Verses 15 to 18, we'll be speaking about biblical reasoning. It's something I want to speak about today a little bit. Uh, Verses 19 to 29 of chapter 3 will be understanding the function of the law. And understand something that has everything to do with you today. You're not under the law of Moses. You probably can't even recite four out of the Ten Commandments, but that's okay. To know it and understand it is so important. It has everything to living by faith. And we'll speak about it when we get there. And then it goes on from 8 to 20, speaks about a pastoral concern, verses 21 to 31. is from a spiritual analogy of depicting two contrasting ways of serving God, one by the Spirit and one by the flesh. We need to stay focused. These chapters deal with true biblical reasoning and the power of discernment, something that the Christian church is so void of today. People are doing anything anybody says because they think it's spiritual. Please let me inform you now. Everything spiritual is not God. Everything that has a Jesus label does not necessarily mean it has anything to do with Jesus. We have to know that. This part of us as Christians, we need to be extremely open to to the pure. All things are pure. But we can never become gullible. We have to be analytical. If someone is getting up and speaking about Christ, uh, you owe everything to God, your Savior, to listen intently if there's error in it. And dare not accept anything, whether it's for me, Pastor John, anybody, as it's the gospel truth without listening to it first and becoming very familiar with people. Uh, Prayerfully and hopefully we drive that point home every week we preach. We need to stay focused on this to sharpen our understanding of biblical thinking and biblical reasoning power. The Galatians were rebuked for not having it, though Paul expected them. He expected them. That's why he said, you foolish Galatians, I expect you to know this truth. I labored amongst you. I I taught you the truth. I hand-fed you the truth until Christ Christ is formed in you. I I fed you the truth. How, How so easily you're deserting him who called you by grace. But yet we can. Because the Galatians missed the obvious verse 21. That if anything can be supplemented to Christ, then Christ died needlessly. No true Christian could ever say that Christ died needlessly. And with that statement, that means you can add nothing to Jesus Christ in his work. It is all of Christ or it is none of Christ. It is something that fills our hearts day in and day. I can't get enough of it. Nothing fills my mind and fills my heart more 
than what Christ has done for me and who Jesus Christ is. I pray that you start to feast on that and you start taking a personal interest into Him who died and rose again on your behalf. Please understand that. Something is going on over here. They missed verse 21 with all its implications that you cannot add anything to Jesus Christ. And because of that, others were able to come in and bewitch them and to manipulate their mind, to deceive them, to cast a spell, in the Greek it also mean that, to cast a spell on them. And this is what it is. It looks like this. But Christ started the whole process. But his role is now deficient now. He's become the forgotten Savior. Moses is in, Christ is out. Because you cannot put the two together. Because all Moses did was witness to the coming of Christ. Even John the Baptist said what Moses would have gladly said. I must decrease so that he can increase. If Moses had his way, he would have said, Don't follow me no more once Messiah has come. Listen to him. Follow him. That's what John the Baptist says. Moses would have agreed with him. But what happened here, someone came up and started resurrecting somebody. It wasn't Christ, it was Moses. And they was talking about Moses. And what happens? Jesus is less and less and less. And I will get into the application to this later on because it affects you more than you know. Paul rebukes them sharply as playing the fool. And he goes through this formula, this rhetoric formula of four obvious questions to make his point. But he starts off with a statement. O foolish Galatians. It's a statement, it's an observation. Paul comes out swinging because of the obvious foundational truth that's found in verse 21 is lost. They're not thinking through the faith. It scares a pastor when God's children don't think through the faith. And listen to the implications of what people are saying. Is it bringing you closer to a deeper love and respect and admiration for Christ and dependence on Him? Or is it leading you in another direction? That is a simple equation. Is all Christian teaching directing you to a greater dependence on the Son of God? Or is it deceiving you and taking you in a different direction? We'll speak about that in application. But that is an obvious equation. How do you know if it's Christian gospel? How do you know if it's really a Christ-centered message? You can say Jesus a hundred times in a message, but is it speaking about the all-sufficiency of the cross to make you right with God? It's not just Jesus separated from His work of atonement. Every time the Bible, the New Testament talks about Christ, it's talking about Jesus in His all-sufficient work at the cross. Always. Unless it's discussing something about his growing up or being uh, his deity or something like that. But on a whole, it's speaking about Jesus and his work of atonement. Anyone who sees and believes Christ's work on the cross should begin to naturally understand that law-keeping and the law of Moses has become obsolete. It's obsolete. It's, it's, it's not necessary anymore. 
I've shared this example last week, I've shared it before, especially many of us coming out of orthodox backgrounds. You know, we hold on to certain things because if we, you know, we were taught it makes you feel closer to God, but when you really live in my faith and you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you have the presence of God with you all the time, what happens those religious things we hold on to just fall away to the wayside. And we don't need things anymore. Because Christ liveth in me, and the life we live, we don't live by the law works anymore, but we live by faith in the Son of God. It is this intuitive understanding of the person of God in us, that closeness with God. That's a life of faith. But because these Galatians were sleeping on the job, they were not watching their post, they let the doors of doctrinal security come down, the enemy has come in and robbed their minds, they were like unsuspecting sheep, the wolf came in, crept in unnoticed, and a wholesale desertion to God of grace, who called them for no other reason but that he chose and loved them. They're abandoning everything. Understand something, this church is only moments away theologically speaking, of collapsing in upon itself and nobody would get saved. There'd be no Christian witness. They might be running around singing Christian songs, but there's no Christian gospel. Unless the gospel is preached, souls are not saved, nor are they nourished. So Paul sees the potential of disaster in this geographical location. And like I shared before, the church is probably not much bigger than what we have here. Maybe twice the size. It wasn't like there was hundreds of people, not at all. There were small congregations. They would meet on Sunday afternoons in maybe someone's house. Someone who had some kind of financial sustenance that they can sustain having people in their house. That's all. And then they would meet during the week at the river. They would meet here, they would meet there. But that, that's how the church was. It wasn't systematic. It wasn't organized. It wasn't formal to what we're used to. They would gather wherever and whenever they really could. But it seems that Sunday they came to break bread together. This wholesale desertion, I don't want you to think that someone's bewitched them. The, the language, and I'll speak about it a little more, is it means to be deceived, but it can mean to cast a spell. And we've got to be careful of that because we don't want to think someone has snuck into the congregation and has taken a, a lock of my hair and took your sock and, and made some kind of voodoo doll village and is now cursing the church when they gather together as some casting some spell of some connotation against us and we're fighting something in the sky. That's not what it's talking about here. People have come in and preached a different message. And they've listened. It's as simple as that. Satan does that. Satan comes in the garden as the unsuspected friend. Oh Eve, did God say... Let me show you a much better way. I know God created everything, and He sustains anything, He provides for everything, He's created you in His image, but I know a little more. I'm the serpent. I know what's going on around here. But that's how it is. That's how error comes in. This is a battle between truth and falsehood. This is a battle between freedom in Christ and slavery to the doctrines and religion of men. Very important to understand that. The rebuke is heightened because of the gracious nature. Don't miss this. Something as reformed people we understand. The rebuke is heightened because of the gracious nature which God provided in the preaching of Paul. When This is a foundational truth. It's another one. When Paul preached, it was like you saw Christ crucified before their very eyes. 
these people got together one day and they heard there was a man named Paul preaching. They had no idea. They went to see this man and he's preaching about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the second coming of Christ and that this man is going to judge the living and the dead. They saw the need, the deep need to be converted and come to Christ. That's the gracious nature of preaching. When it's sustained by truth. And you are depending on the Holy Spirit to make it real. You depend that God makes preaching so real. It's that though you can almost see Jesus Christ crucified. Understand something. The crucifixion is already 18 years past. But yet. That's the way Paul preached. Some of these people weren't even alive when Christ was crucified. But yet they believed. Because the preaching was so clear. So right on. Had no man's intentions in it at all. It was by the power of God and not the wisdom of men that these people's salvation stood. But they missed this gracious nature that God provided in Paul's preaching. It was before your eyes, Galatians, that Jesus Christ was publicly, or he was heralded publicly, portrayed as crucified. There was no mixed messages in Paul or the other apostles. We'll speak more about this in application. Jesus was so clearly understood as suffering and dying for sinners that what they saw clearly with the eyes of faith, their personal need to be saved. No mixed messages. It wasn't, let me make you feel comfortable, throw a little curveball around here. You know, you know you sinned against God. You know, you need to get straight with God. This is a straightforward. God loves you, but you've sinned against God, and the wrath of God is on your life. But if you look with the eyes of faith to Christ, He took all the wrath of God on your behalf. Come and embrace the Savior. Surrender your hearts to the Savior by faith, and He'll accept you the way you are. That's the gospel. Not let's have cupcakes, pancakes, and in there some way I'll tell you, you know, God's here for you and he can, you know, he can do everything you need to do because your life, be, well, you're just an empty life of a shell of a human being. <laughs> you understand. He spoke about what's important. Man's salvation. We need to be very clear and articulate when it comes to expressing the Christian faith. We need to be forthright with our convictions as Christians. All men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and need to come to Christ. They embrace this without any works of the law whatsoever. But that doesn't mean Paul didn't preach the law. If we go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want to read this. There's a proper way to use the law. And there's a proper way that Paul did use the law. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Understand something, that means those who are saved. But for the lawless, those who are not saved. And the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and the profane. And for those who strike their fathers and their mothers. It's for murderers. It's for the sexually immoral person. It's for men who practice homosexuality. It's for enslavers. It's for liars. It's for perjurers. It's for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
in accordance with the gospel of God's mercy. Of the glory of the blessed God, which is, has been entrusted to us. Understand that there's a proper need for the law. But when Paul preached, he didn't preach, keep the law. He preached, you broke the law. All of us have broke the law. So when Paul preached, he used it in a negative way, not the positive way. But the Judaizers that were coming in, they were saying, no, you've got to keep the law to be accepted. Paul said, what? The law only condemns us. It's the ministry of death. It's not the ministry of life. No one can keep the law. I should know. I'm a Pharisee. I was born, I was born in the tribe of Benjamin. I was named after King Saul. I was circumcised on an eighth day. I was born a Hebrew of Hebrews. My mother was a Hebrew. My father was a Hebrew. My whole ancestry, my whole tradition, were all Hebrews. And the only thing the Lord produced in me was a zeal to kill Christians. It doesn't work. Law keeping cannot work. Paul knew what he was talking about. The only thing, the only thing Paul did with the law was to tell men you're broken. We have all broken the law of God. He goes on to ask another question. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the central point of these first five verses. It's the central point of the whole third chapter. Paul, in one of his very rare times, he, he leans on Christian experience to bring clarity to the Christian message. Paul doesn't do that much. Paul usually leans on objective truth of what Christ has done and who Christ is, not on Christian experience. That's a loaded question. Because everybody can say, well, I had this experience. Well, I had this experience. Well, I had this experience. Let me tell you about these experiences. And all of a sudden we think experience verifies Christianity. It doesn't. Paul is using this. We've got to be very careful how we use that. This is what he's making. This is the point. Becoming a Christian is an experience that came just from hearing the gospel of God. The experience is the experience of deep conviction for sin. The experience of faith in Christ. The experience of repentance. The experience of, of joy and of hope and of loving God and fulfilling the two commandments. That's the experience Paul is talking about here. This is what happens when men turn from darkness and to Jesus Christ. These Galatians, all of a sudden, they were filled with these religious affections for God out of nowhere. And Paul is reminding them, think about where you were and where you are now. Think about your love for God. Think about your willingness to repent. Think about your willingness to confess. Think about your willingness to love and embrace people now. Where did that come from? Did that come from being circumcised? Did it come from following Moses? Or one day you came to the marketplace and I was preaching about Jesus and it changed your life upside down? When you got saved, what were you doing or what were you listening to? We went to church or someone shared the gospel, but we weren't doing anything. We believed and it changed our life upside down. The rhetorical question is clear. You receive the Spirit and a whole transformed life just by hearing about Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. It has nothing to do with the Jewish law or works. So don't go back to it. Don't listen to it. If it didn't save you, it won't change you. 
If God, if, it, if God didn't accept you by that first, He won't change you with it now. Your whole life has began with a trust in Jesus. It's going to continue that way, and it's going to end that way. Oh, how easy we can be deceived by ourselves and think we got to muscle something up sometimes and t- instead of just learning to continually trust in Christ 24-7. He goes on to say, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now trying to perfect it by the flesh? The question goes on to all the questions that went before. To establish the superiority of faith in Jesus Christ, which alone brings the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 6 calls it the power of the age to come. This is what enables a believer to live out the law of love. This is what enables a believer to renounce their own selfish desires, their own sinful desires. It's not a fear of not being accepted. It's because you and I are accepted, just like the Galatians, they were accepted by God. How important that is for us to know. You can't perfect it anymore. There's nothing to do. Jesus has done it all. You cannot change your life by trying to do something. How many people really want to change their life or want their life changed in certain areas of your life? Don't raise your hand. Believe. Believe. Continue to believe. With tears in your eyes, throw yourself at the mercy of God. That's the only thing that changes. Doing something. If I told you to go home and fast for the next 21 days, you're just going to get hungry. I'm telling you. Unless your heart is in it, it ain't going to change anything. It won't change your character. But God can use that. I can go home and tell you to read your Bible 24 hours a day and everything. It doesn't work. Throw yourself at the mercy of God. When you got saved, what did you do? Did you make a promise to God? Or did you throw yourself at the mercy of God? Do you need change now? You need more love? You need all of this? You want to do it? Throw yourself at the mercy of God. That's what changes you. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Here's the implication. Making yourself acceptable to God. Christ began the process, but now Christ has to move over and I have to move in and ease God out so I can get the thing going. I know what I need. You don't. You recognize what you think you need. Only God can get you to that place. That is it. He asks another question. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Paul brings up a biblical phenomenon. It's called persecution. But as bad as persecution sounds, it's really a sign of conversion. That faith is alive. Works doesn't scare people, nor does it irritate others. Salvation by grace turns religious people upside down. Because you're telling them you're not good enough to go to heaven. (laughs) You need to trust in Jesus like the rest of us does. And that is irritating. And that's what's going on here. The Jewish zealots were irritated that these Gentiles all now all proclaiming the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they're accepted by God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and basically, you're not. It irritated. They got persecuted for it, but as Acts 5.42 says about the disciples who were persecuted by the religious leaders after they got beaten up, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It wasn't in vain. 
He asks another question. Does he who supplied the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do, do so from the works of the Lord just by hearing in faith? It's another rhetorical question. By the time we get to here, we know. No, it wasn't. It's by faith. This question just follows Paul's logic throughout. It goes to show, again, the superiority of faith. Now listen to this. This is a living trust in what Christ has accomplished. This is not an empty faith. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that faith is meaningless. It's not faith. It's the object of our faith. Jesus Christ, as opposed to Moses and the law. Faith means I trust in Jesus in every area of our life. That is the power of faith. Not in believing, it's the object of our, of our faith. Two comments here. Paul is not necessarily saying that there's a continued supplying of additional miracles and the person of the Holy Spirit. But what they received when they first received it from God, God supplied. But, but it also could mean a continuance of both the Spirit and of miracles. It's spoken in the present tense. The verb is in the present tense. God who is continually supplying you with the Spirit, God who is continually supplying you with miracles, does He do this because you are circumcised or because you believed in Jesus? I believe it's a continuum of the miracles and continuum of supplying of the Spirit. I will speak about that in application in a moment. But let me give a summary. Paul makes his point clear. And we should all hear them loud. All God's gracious work in them, the Galatians, around them through the miracles, was because of the superiority of the object of their faith, and that's Jesus Christ. This is no empty faith, but the superiority of the object of their faith, the voluntary death of the Son of God on their behalf. You would think to know this truth, the last thing we would do is leave it. But in applying this to our life today, we all need it, constantly. As I said before, just a couple of applications, we'll close. The preacher should always be clear about the Christian message, about the person and the work of Christ. There should be no ambiguous teaching from the pulpit. Again, there should be no ambiguous teaching from the pulpit. When you hear a Christian sermon, it should be as clear with the eyes of faith that it's Christ himself who's being crucified. That you know the truth and all its implications. Anything else than that is not forthright and can be misleading. B. Like the Galatians, all Christians are held accountable to what they believe. Ignorance is not bliss. Paul was angered by the false teachers. But he was perplexed and rebuke of, of the Galatians' ability to easily be gullible. He held them extremely accountable for their lack of discernment. As Christians, you can't sit back and say, I don't know. No one told me. How was I supposed to know? I, he came and told me I needed to be circumcised. Sounded good to me. I'm in. Spoke to a man, he's a good friend of mine. Got saved many years ago, about 25 years ago. Walked with the Lord for about 10 years. Fell away because the pastor he was following, unfortunately I say that because he was following the pastor, not Christ. 
got caught up in a lot of bad stuff. Uh, he was an elder in a church, fell away. And as I speak to him today, I, I, he's in my life, and I try to speak to him to bring him back to a deeper faith in Christ. He says, but I got burned. I got burned, I got burned. That's always, I got burned. My family got burned. There's thousands and thousands of dollars I got burned. You see, he's partly accountable for being burned. You can't say, well, they burned me. I got, I got abused. I was spiritually abused. Yeah, you were, but understand something. You were gullible. You opened up your mind. You didn't keep your eyes on Christ crucified. You follow something else. You're accountable. It's the only, it's the beginning of being healed spiritually. If anyone who has been deceived spiritually, the beginning is being held accountable to their own crime of gullibility. Period. You got to leave everybody else to God. You got to leave everybody else to God. If you want to get on with God, you want to grow in God, you need to be accountable for your lack of discernment. Period. Very important. He says, who has bewitched you? Number three. There's a pastor's nightmare. Shared it a couple weeks ago. Nothing worse than preaching your heart out truth, trying to show Christ as clearly as you can, crucified, and someone going home and reading a book that has nothing to do with Jesus. It's, just, it's so alarming. You know, just, just do this and you'll get that. Almost like this sort of uh, Coca-Cola machine with God. You know, you put a dollar in, you get two sodas out. If you kick it a couple of times like Fonzie did, you'll get a couple extra sodas for free. Like, you know, God is sort of, it's like an exchange system. You know, it's like, you know, you do this and God does that. It's like, no, that is not the gospel. If it sounds easy, it's not the gospel. Jesus preached no easy crucifixion. The apostles preached no easy Christianity. If it sounds easy, it's not Christianity. Please understand that. No matter how well it sounds, these Judaizers that were selling them on circumcision, they made it sound so seducing. Come, join the fellowship. Drink the Kool-Aid. Just come on in. Come into the pool. If it's easy, I'm telling you now in the authority of God's Word, it's not Christian. At all. If I, Paul says, or an angel from heaven were to preach to you an easy gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Please understand that. It is true nightmare today how many people are easily deceived by what they hear. It is more easily to be deceived today than it was in Galatians 2,000 years ago because... You can just listen to anything anywhere. Everybody's talking about Jesus these days. Anybody who has a mouth and had this, some experience is talking about Jesus. Please understand something. The only authenticity of a true Christian gospel, it has to bear witness to the scriptures. That takes time. That takes being rooted in a good Christian teaching church for many months and many years sometimes before you can sharpen your hearing to say, there's something wrong with that message. There's something missing. I don't know what it is, but there's something missing in this person's message. I, I just don't know what it is, but it doesn't sound like it's Jesus. You have to have those ears, otherwise we become gullible, whether it's you, me, or anybody else. And the use of Christian experience, Paul uses Christian experience, but we need to be very careful here. Christian experience is real. And it glorifies God. God is glorified in it. I want to ask you a couple of questions on Christian experience. 
Think about some of the work of grace in your own life. I, don't know, I know what miracles God has done in my life. And I don't need a new arm. I could use a, a new hip, a lower back, two good knees, and a couple other odds and ends. But I need to think different. I need to desire different. I need to love different. Those are the miracles I need. I don't know what you're asking God for, but I know the substance of what I'm asking for, and I know what God has done in my life. But I ask you this, think about what God has done in your life, right up to where you are now. If you're a Christian 24 hours old, God has something, done something in your life. If you're a Christian one year old, six months old, 16, 60 years old, God has done miracles in your life. I'll ask you a question. What one of those miracles of grace was done because you had done something before? Or did you just cry out as a desperate Christian saying, God, I need your help in my life? Was there any prerequisite of God's grace in your life except faith? With maybe prayers and maybe many tears as you prayed over a promise of God until God sustained you by grace and changed something in your life? Was it because you made a promise? There's not a man that can stand up and say, God did this because I made a promise. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ, the only promise keeper. No grace has ever come from heaven because a man made a promise. It's because we throw ourselves at God because we're weak and we're unable sinners in this world to do one good thing apart from Jesus Christ. Period. So why are we going to start preaching, if you do this or you do that, you're going to have a breakthrough. If i got to hear more breakthrough theology, I never want to hear it again. It's from the pit of hell. If you need a breakthrough, you need a miracle of God, run to God as a child of God and plead with your Savior. Plead with your Heavenly Father and remind them you're not perfect. And remind them you feast on daily bread of His grace. There's no methodology. That will do it. Tears and brokenness is a good place to start. And I'll close with this. Miracles. Are they fit today? Do we use this text to say that God is continually doing miracles today? Well, let's be real. Miracles are real. You cannot read miracles into the gospel, nor can you take it out of the gospel. But they're there. And there's nothing you can say about it. But understand something. The miracles in this case will go into the continuing work of confirming the reality of Jesus Christ above the Mosaic Law. And that's important to understand. And the continuing miracles, remember I may mention that it's the, it's, the verb is the present tense and it could actually mean why is God still performing miracles among you? Is because those who were teaching we're still teaching about Jesus Christ. Authentic Christian miracles will come when Christ is exalted. We are 2,000 years removed from the fledgling church. I can only say this in closing. We cannot say that miracles don't ever happen. And we can never say that miracles should happen all the time. This is not miracles on demand. But just as dangerous is this. And I'll leave this to every Christian conscience. Just as dangerous as saying there are no miracles, and just as dangerous as saying there's, there should be miracles, is saying, why haven't I seen miracles? 
as though God has to come and serve up a miracle for me every time I come to church. That is just as dangerous. Pray in faith believing, and in faith accept whatever God wants to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for whole foolish Galatians who have been the fool long before us, God. But God, let us be a people ever discerning. Let us be a people, people ever learning. Let us be a people ever expecting greater things from you, Father God. Only because if you gave us your dear Son, will you now not give us all things in him? Aren't we more than conquerors, Father? Isn't there nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus, our Lord? Don't all things work together for good for those who are called and loved according to your purposes, Father God? You won't spare nothing. No one can bring a charge against your elect, Father. Come and strengthen your people with the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.